Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. For the second half of these interviews, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash pryingpriest. But for now, enjoy the show. Welcome, Father Deacon Simeon Price to the Prying Priest Podcast. Thank you for having me. I am pleased to be here. I admire you on a handful of different fronts. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. I'll I admire, take that. I admire you because uh, your beard is amazing. And I, you know, I have, a, I have a scanty beard, you know, I'm working on it. And I also admire you because of the journey that you've been on and your... Um, and you're well-read, and we've had great discussions about philosophy and art, and I've always uh, taken a lot of value out of those conversations. And you have a beautiful family. Yes, they're beautiful, and are the cause of my beard going from black to gray. <laughs> gotcha. Which is an okay thing. I've been told I need to look older. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't look my... 45 soon to be 46 year old self who tells you you need to look older oh i don't know i've been told because i i don't look like i'm 45 or 46 so mm -hmm. i look like i'm in my 30s so people oh, are yeah. mm -hmm. are a little bit reticent to mm -hmm. yeah anyways yeah i don't see I'm any okay with that. i don't see any gray in your beard right now well it's hard to trust me it's there <laughs> it's uh it's there and more so in the last six months let me tell you yeah, so Father Deacon Simeon Price, you are a deacon in the Orthodox yes. Church, in, and you live in uh, British Columbia? Yes, I, I live in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Abbotsford, British Columbia, that's right. Yes. I've been to Abbotsford. There's not much here. It's beautiful flowers. Yeah, yogurt has more culture than Abbotsford, let me I, just say that. I've Sorry. been to the International Friendship Garden in Abbotsford. Mm -hmm. Good for you, I haven't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, I'm going to fly out to uh, Abbotsford one of these days, and we'll go there together. Oh, well, that will be a wonderful, yeah, wonderful experience. We'll record our next podcast at the International and, Friendship Garden, and then I'll take you to the homeless shelter, and you can meet my friends there. Yeah, yeah, exactly, perfect. And then we'll record other podcasts there. I'm happy with that. It'd be great. Uh, so we are currently doing this over Zoom. You are in Abbotsford. I'm in Hamilton, and you are. In a coffee shop, there's like art on the wall. You're by a fireplace. Yes. What kind of coffee shop is this? So I'm in my local establishment um, just down the road from my house um, where I come. It's nice and quiet. It's not as bustling and crazy as Starbucks, and it's a good place to sit and read quietly uh, because home is not quiet. Mm. Right, now there's, right now there's construction, but with four children from, from 15 to 10, uh, home is not a quiet place, so it's nice to have places in town that are quiet and have a good vibe to them. So, mm -hmm. uh, so you're a deacon in the Orthodox Church. Yes. What does that mean? Like, explain that to maybe some listeners who don't know the structure of kind of the clergy in the Orthodox Church. But then, after you're done that, can you explain more so what it means for you? 
personally right now? So in the structure of the, the, the clergy, um, the deacon is the first of the ordained clergy. Uh, you'll get a, a blessing or a tonsuring to be a subdeacon or a reader, but the, the first of the ordained clergy is, is the deacon. And the deacon in most parishes will serve the priest, uh, does the litanies, does in fact a majority of the speaking during the service. Um, leading the people in prayer. Um, if you're a proto-deacon, which means you've been the deacon for a long, long time, um, you're usually s- serving uh, with a bishop and you're sort of you're the aide de camp for the bishop. In the olden days, uh, the deacon had a much more pronounced role before the sort of rise of the presbyterate. Um, so the deacon would... Um, be in charge of collecting the gifts for the great entrance and all these sort of things. And even if you listen during the Prosca Media service, and even throughout the service, the deacon is always telling uh, both uh, the, the the congregation as well as the priest what to do. You know, let us pray to the Lord, uh, Master Bless. Um, the You know, the underlying language of the liturgy has the deacon running the show. Right. Yeah. Um, we, and, we, ha- we have a lot of listeners who uh, have maybe never even been to an Orthodox yeah, service before. Yeah. And, and if you go, it's, it's very ceremonial. And the deacon almost functions like the butler who keeps the night moving, but, you know, yeah, the, the MC. It, yeah. In fact, the, the basis of the word deacon is like servant, kitchen servant. And so one of the, it, it, that's essentially my, my job is to make sure everything's in order. Uh, make sure things move uh, efficiently and properly through the service, um, sometimes including crowd control and uh, making sure that, you know, that everybody's where they should be in the altar as far as the, the acolytes and the other, the other service, the other people who are in the altar aside from the priest um, to make sure they're doing their jobs properly so that we sort of disappear The way I look at it is I don't want people having gone through the service to say, oh, Father Deacon Simeon did a great job. I want to be that they didn't even know I was there. Mm. Um, That's like being being a sound editor for a movie. Yeah, you you have an important role to play, but you need to be aware that, that your role should never get in the way of or get in front of what's going on in the service. Uh, And it can be a challenge. to do that when you're talking all the time. Um, but I think there are, there are ways to do it that allow you to become part, become intertwined with the service, with the liturgy, so that it, you, it flows through you and you flow through it. And people aren't like, oh, look at the deacon. I can, and then you, so you have to be very careful about how loud your voice is when you're doing, when you're saying things or, or in what tone or what intonation. Um, and to speak clear. So there's a lot of things to consider when, when being a deacon. I mean, the other things I do are, or help run some of the programs uh, at the parish. Um, so Bible studies and, and that sort of thing. Um, as we have one priest and three deacons at my parish, they're sort of, we have all different areas of uh, skill sets. So we, we have our fingers in all sorts of different pies, but that's essentially the mm-hmm. deacon is the servant of the, of the bishop and the priest in the parish. Right. So how do you view your own diaconate? Like, how do you view yourself as a deacon? How has it changed maybe parts of your spirituality? Um, 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting having come from a Protestant uh, Pentecostal background as a pastor for a number of years, um, and then come becoming Orthodox eight years ago on the 14th or 16th of this month. So in seven days, um, I had to go from the very top to the very bottom. And in the evangelical church, and this is the, in some ways, this is the same way you see this in, in Orthodox communities as well. The pastor is, or the priest is put on this pedestal and everything revolves around that person. So that was me in this evangelical church. And when I converted, I became nothing. And that was okay. It was hard, but good lesson to be at the back of the room, back of the class as a lowly catechumenate, head down, just absorbing things. And I stayed like that for about let's see till 2016 really so um, how many years started. that's four years yeah four years just in the back um that, that would be very and, tough like yep. that would be very tough like if i had to do that I, I i that would be extremely difficult to do from going from preaching almost every sunday and leading everything to, to nothing it was it was very, very, very hard. Max Harwood, I had on here a couple of episodes ago, and he described, he had a similar journey in that he, mm. he left the evangelical church and came to the Orthodox church. And he described it metaphorically the way you hear stories of, let's say a medical doctor from like a Slavic Eastern European country comes to Canada and Canada does not recognize uh, his or hers um, credentials. So you're basically starting again. And he sort of described yeah. it like that. Like, yeah, you do have s some expertise, but it's, it's, it's a different country. It's a different culture. It's a different ethos, right? And that would be just really hard. It was. Um, that being said, I, I went in knowing that was going to be the case and, you know, had prepared myself. And, and I think it was, it was something I'd always battled in ministry anyways uh, avoiding the 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 idolatry and, and the pride that was that was there and i saw in so many other leaders and i felt myself in my in my old church we were really successful by evangelical standards i suppose we had large numbers we were growing things were going really well and it was very hard for me to leave um and yet i i as hard as it was it was incredibly necessary to break me down. I could not have been, and I would not have been the deacon I am today had that process not happened. Because I simply would have not, I not, would not have understood the difference between being in pastoral ministry in the evangelical church and serving as an ordained clergy person in the Orthodox church. They are two distinct operations. They don't function the same. And I needed to learn that, and it took a long time, as it takes us a long time to really, you know, is that, that adage that you don't really know a language until you start dreaming in it and speak, and it becomes your lingua franca. I, even as much as I had read about orthodoxy, it was not my first language. Uh, and it took a long time for me to start, you know, the, the internal dialogue in my head to be orthodox, that, that language in my head. And, and that time and that space and that quietness was was necessary for that to happen. And that needed to happen in order to prepare me for the, the diaconate. You mentioned that it was tough to leave your 
charismatic church. Yes. Do you have like a couple of stories about that? Like how, how I guess part of that is also the story of like what you would call your conversion as mm-hmm. well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I remember talking with my priest about it because I couldn't obviously show up at for Sunday services at, our parish be, because I was working uh, as a, as a pastor. So Wait, so you were you were attending an Orthodox church like in secret? Well, yeah, as your sort of a, evangelical pastor. Yeah, we. But even at my evangelical church, we were doing uh, communion every Sunday. I had okay. Put, I, that's that's, I had, that's not common no. for evangelical churches. No, so you were being influenced put, then by Orthodox. Oh, definitely. I had put uh, icons on the table. In, in my evangelical church. Wow. Um, and people I, were okay with that? They were. They trusted me. And I really appreciated it, uh, that. And that was where the difficulty was because I had, I mean, I was, we were baptized, I was baptizing people. And I had gone through this process of very, like studying what does baptism look like as a, as a sacrament. And so I was teaching that to people. And, you know, as I came to the realization that I was going to have to leave because I could no longer lead with integrity. Mm. I that my internal spiritual activity and my external practice were growing further and further apart. And it was going to tear me apart one way or the other. Right? Like if I had stayed in my in my church, in my evangelical church, my spiritual life would have died. And if I had, you know, but if I had if I had left poorly and tried to pull a bunch and been, and been really divisive, it would have been bad as well. And so the option, the only really option that I had was to tell people the truth about what was going on, about where I stood. And then, you know, and then say, I'm, I'm resigning. And it, it went well. It was a challenge for people because I had been in their lives and I'm still in a number of their lives. Um, the hardest thing for me was the question of what what about the baptisms that I performed? Um, you know, because coming and then myself being rebaptized, um, and then having to sort of have people ask me, well, you know, Father Deacon, you baptized me when you were this, like, and now you're saying, you know, this is a different baptism, like what's going on here? And, you know, those, those discussions were very challenging and difficult. And I love those mm-hmm. people still. Um, but they, you know, it's, and so it wasn't necessarily for me, the challenge in leaving wasn't so much theological. I had already sort of decided on the distinctives there. It was much more relational and to be separate from that, that family that I had grown uh, together with. That was very, and, and like I said, there are still those who I'm in contact with regularly there are those who don't still don't understand and i that's okay i can you know i can be in that place where there's tension and be all right with it um yeah. i gave them my promise that i would be by their side no matter what and that doesn't matter you know that's it, not changed by the fact that i'm now orthodox um i'm still part of their life and part of their spiritual developments and which is a real blessing um for me so was there anyone in that community, like when you became Orthodox, was there anyone that also became Orthodox or, or on the other side of the coin, was there anybody who 
called you out for like betrayal? No, because our church was, hmm, the way our church was constructed, there was not a lot of mature, well-developed evangelical Christians there. It was an inner city church. Um, there was a lot of charisma and activity, um, but part of my job was to build spiritual and theological depth there. And that had been going on. And I had a, I had a good relationship with everyone and they understood me and I understood them because there was an openness there. I didn't get any sort of blowback from anyone. I remember when, I mean, when one of my good friends came to our baptism and realized that he wasn't able to participate in the Eucharist was offended and upset until I explained to him that we were doing two different things. And he's, he sort of understood it. I mean, he's still a little reticent, but we are, we're still friends and we see each other regularly and I'm, I still speak into his life and it's, God has been gracious and uh, compassionate in that the only real blowback that I got was from family rather than from my church family. So mm. what was your experience getting into ministry in the first place? Was there um, family kind of, did you have maybe pastors in the family or was there any, yeah. Like what, what yeah. made you want to get into Christian ministry to begin with? Well, I didn't want to. <laughs> I get, so um, I had no intention. I, I grew up in a fairly rigid Mennonite home um, and it never really accepted anything. Left home quite early on later in my teenage, 16, 17, became a chef. It had no inclination towards. You left, sorry, you left home at 16? Yeah. Well, I came back and forth. Okay. But is that, I, is that just, normal for like the Mennonite no. community you were a part of? No. Oh, okay. No, it was not, it was not a, a ple it was not a, a pleasant separation. Okay. Say that. Oh. Like, did you run away from home? Um, or was it, no, I I'm leaving like, and that's that I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Okay. I can't, I can't, I can't do this. And then, you know, I, I came back and we, you know, things, it was a very tumultuous relationship. Mm -hmm. um, with my family and I, cause I had essentially in their eyes at that point abandoned God and I was perfectly okay with wow. that. So I had, so what was the, what, what was religion like at home? Religion at home was, uh, morality and behavior, right? Christians did certain things and didn't do a lot of things, right? Like you only drank alcohol if you were a satanic and, and it was a very rigid moral code. Um, and a lot of discussion about sin and heaven and hell and, and that, and I just didn't, I didn't see any evidence of the gospel in, in the lives of the, the church that I was in and in my parents' lives. And I was just like, well, and then I started, and then I started reading um, on my own, and realized, well, there's this huge world of of thought out there that has no time for this ridiculous peasant religious stuff. And you know, I was like, I'm I'm done. There's there's no evidence of the the for God so loved the world in this in this uh, 
place. So I'm, I'm done. And I walked away. I think I still, I still had an attachment to the idea of God, but as some sort of disembodied force that, you know, essentially just makes sure that gravity keeps going on and the sun keeps coming up. But as far as any personalism, no, I had no interest in it. Mm-hmm. And so I went off and made my way in the world. And, and you went off to become a cook? Chef. A chef. I'm sorry. Yeah. I have offended sorry. you. <laughs> I was a cook for a while, and then I stopped being a cook and became a chef. That's what I meant. I and, know, that's yes, what I meant. Yeah. And that was, you know, that it's, it, that those years are very formative in how I operate. Like one of the things that is an abiding principle in my life is that 15 minutes early for anything is on time. Mm-hmm. And that's something I learned early on in the kitchen. So er, I'm early for everything, but I just think I'm on time, mm-hmm. which, you know, I've learned over the years to not get that other, not everyone thinks like that and it's okay. And I don't need to get, you know, I have, you know, being in, in the kitchen, you have, everything has to be hundred percent perfect all of the time. And that's what the expectation is. So you don't get praise for being perfect. You're expected to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And Spending years in that really ingrained that, and then I had a, I have a very high expectation of myself. The problem is, and that's okay for me. The problem is, is that I had started placing those expectations on other people, mm. and it took me a long time to sort of okay realize I can't expect people to be like me. It's just not going to work. And I mean that 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 goes into those years spent quietly being a catechumen right is and being obedient and humble is is learning that my expectations of myself cannot be transferred on other people that's not only unrealistic it's doing harm to those people and so yeah so being in the kitchen although it was a long time ago it's still very much a part of my life and and in a sense i've I like a very ordered thing like when i when I do, when, when I was in school, right, everything was ordered and everything was on time. And, you know, you, I, I would always write out all my assignments when I got my syllabuses and give dates that I had to complete them by, not necessarily due dates. I got a little lax on that later on. But that sort of thinking is still sort of there in me. Like when I'm, when I'm setting up a, uh, uh, to run a Bible study or something, I everything's ordered and in its place and times like, you know, we'll be doing this from 5.15 to 5.45 and then at 5.47 we'll do this. And then <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, I've been challenged to be a little bit more flexible, which is okay. Uh, and be a little more relaxed, but those, those years in the kitchen were very formative for me. Um, and the passion that was there and the excitement was there. It, it's a religious experience. It really is. Um, and, uh, but that was, that was, I did that until I m- met my wife in 2001. And then uh, she was attending a local Bible college and I was which, like, which, oh, okay. which Bible college? Columbia Bible college in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Um, yeah. just so everybody knows we've had a, you're, I think the third or fourth person maybe on the podcast who's been to Columbia Bible college. <laughs> and, uh, we're going to get a couple of others that have been yes. to Columbia Bible college. And then eventually we're going to have all of you on for like a group <laughs> Columbia Bible college uh, podcast. 
Have you had Father Ryan on yet? No. So he's one uh, of the ones I would like to interview. So I have to reach out to him. We graduated in the same year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, oh. anyway, yeah, she continue. Was go- Your wife went to so Columbia Bible. She, she, and I, and and we met, and and she was going there, and I had sort of come back to the idea that possibly there was space in my life uh, for God. Um, I didn't know where that was, but I was comfortable with it. And, and, and do you mean like God as an abstract idea, as or a, like as no, a Christian as God? A as a as a Christian, as a person. Right. God as a person. Yeah. As a relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I have to say when I met my wife and when I, I was a card carrying member of the communist party of Canada and a hardcore raving Marxist. So much so that my green Jetta had a, uh, we had a big red star on the hood of my army green Jetta. My binders had hammers and sickles on them. It was, it was a remarkable experience entering into a very, sort of conservative evangelical Anabaptist Bible college. Surprisingly, the library there was full of works on Lenin and, and other, the, the early socialist movement. So I, I didn't go in going into ministry. I wanted to work with uh, at-risk youth because um, I had been there and I, I knew what that was like. And I had no desire to go into like professional pastoral ministry at all. And then, in my second year, I think, you know, I, I was challenged to consider uh, being a pastor. And then, you know, there were people around me who were telling me, well, you have these certain life experiences and skill sets and uh, that would be really valuable. And I was like, at, still at that point, I was like, you know, I'm, I don't really know what this relationship with Jesus looks like in my own life. Um, it's complicated. Um, like on, on Facebook. You would put it's complicated. Oh yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. It was com- because it was. I was even though I had I sort of knew the tenets of the faith like in memory. I didn't know what that I didn't know what it meant to have a relationship, and so I was still working it out because I the only thing I had learned about religion was morality. I it, it was just like okay, well I'm still making these quote unquote really bad moral decisions in my life. Um, I don't know if I'm cut out. How could I be at the front telling people to do this, that, and the other thing when I'm, I'm not, and I don't, I didn't live my life in a, in a closet. Like people, everybody knew. And I've always lived like, hey, my, I have no empty, I have no skeletons in my closet, um, which is a hard thing. It's a hard way to live like that, but there's a lot of freedom that comes from it too. So, you know, telling my story is an, it's not a big deal for me that I don't like worry about somebody to be like, Oh, did you hear about father? Did you to me? I'm like, yeah, no, everybody knows already. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. No, you could go talk to my Bishop. It's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's nothing shocking there. Be like, Oh yeah, I heard it. Yeah. We heard that. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were, I remember when I, when I was doing an interview, my interview to become a deacon and they asked me if there was anything that they needed to be aware of on the internet. And I'm like, well, there's like a few videos of me preaching, but, you know, that's about it. And they're like preaching on what? And I was like, oh, this it's okay. But I think, you know, that being, being open like that was attractive to people at the evangelical level. And so I finished, I graduated in 2006. And by 2007, I was in full-time ministry. Wow. At a, at a church plant in 
Mission BC at a movie theater. Hmm. Yeah. Comfy seats with popcorn and coffee. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's an interesting challenge when you think about how to, how to construct a, a place of worship. It, these, the, the theater was designed like a, like a Greek or Roman amphitheater. So I'd be sitting there and, and I had read a lot of, I, I was feeling like, am I Socrates here? And, you know, and I'm, you know, corrupting the youth and it was, but it was actually really difficult to get people to engage because they were sitting in comfy chairs and it's, it's a theater. So their brain tells them right when they enter that space, that building, because buildings matter, um, tells them I'm in a theater. They can't help but think that. And their brain tells them, you're in a theater here. You're here to get entertained. You're here to sit down and be served and watch this thing go on and then leave. And we never, we were never actually able to overcome that. Even though we tried all sorts of different things, we were never able to overcome that mindset of the people there. And it, it presented a very difficult challenge. In fact, when the church, when I, after I had left, the church had to move out of the theater um, and because so much of the identity of the church was attached to that theater experience when they moved the church eventually sort of faded away joined another community and doesn't exist anymore um so you know being starting a church starting an evangelical community um and is is a very interesting experience it's there's a little bit of marketing there's a you know there's a you got to be a bit of a business person because the market is flooded with opportunities. Um, and I was, I didn't want to be a part of a typical evangelical church. And by that time I had fin- my, in my last year, I had done a directed study on the Eastern church. And so I had read uh, Vladimir Lossky's mystical theology of the Eastern church and the, 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 Ortho, uh, the Orthodox Way by uh, Metropolitan Callistus Ware and some other texts, works by St. Simeon, the New Theologian, of course. Um, and so I had been, like, the last two years of my uh, degree, I had been reading voraciously through Orthodox theology. And then as I moved into ministry, continued to consume it. And so I began to try and create an Orthodox experience within an evangelical framework. and. There was a lot of receptivity to that. Um, I had been doing reader services, you know, before our actual service started. And I had a sensor and like all of this stuff. And my wife's like, what are you doing? Like, this is crazy stuff. Um, and I'm like, it's, it's not crazy. And I'm like, there's, there's an important sensory experience that we're missing in our church experience. We're not. I often say that a lot of evangelical communities, pastors, and the way that they're trained, forget that there's human beings in the in the seat. It, often, at times, there's just brains there, and you just have to talk to the brain to get the brain to believe what you're saying. And I was like, no, these you know, these are human beings. They have uh, smell, they hear, they taste, they touch. All of these things are part of how we know what we know. And when we don't realize that and we don't access that and we just focus on the cognitive approach we create belief we don't create it's not faith belief can easily be deconstructed Um, and that's that's the challenge is that i had a belief not a faith and as i read more and 
gathered more information and talked to more Orthodox people. And then people from I had gone to school with became Orthodox. I began to realize that and slowly my belief structure was being dismantled and a faith was be and was a, a faith was being uh, put in its place. And it came to the point where I was, I, I had to, I had no choice. If my faith was going to survive, this faith that I was experiencing, the faith of Christ in me was going to continue. I had to abandon my beliefs. And I was patient, waited for my wife and, you know, we talked things through and it, it took a while, but eventually, you know, she found her way too. And we were, and I was still reticent about leaving. And my priest said to me, you know, just remember that as Moses stands on the Red Sea and the waves part, he doesn't go, oh, I wonder, you know. So I left and it was August of 2011 was the end of August, last Sunday of August was my last Sunday. And the church that I was pastoring sent me off, gave me a car, and it was really wonderful and it was beautiful. And because I, 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 as much as I tried to explain, I don't think people really understood. I think they just thought, oh, he's just going to like another denomination. Um, so yeah, and then I, we came to St. Herman's in 2011 and spent a year as a catechumen. And then I don't know if this was, I'm not one to say that, that God orchestrates specific instances of suffering uh, to sort of help people along, let's say. But a year, almost uh, six months after we converted, I went into the hospital to get a cortisone shot in my left knee and came out with a septic infection, which left me disabled, uh, nearly lost my leg, and, and essentially was unable to walk uh, and move properly for the next almost six years, which is, you know, a very difficult thing to then... I lost my paycheck. I had a full-time job, benefits, everything was all great. And then that to nothing. And it was like that for, I mean, I just started working back full-time again in November of last year. And so not only did we lose money, I lost my physical health as well. Um, and my, you know, and, and when you're disabled, it's very difficult to parent. It's very difficult to do anything. And my wife had to essentially navigate a whole new world. Right, we had a new faith community. We were new to the faith. Her husband no longer has a job. Her husband can't get up and walk around and help the kids and do all that sort of stuff. So, we really, but we wouldn't have we wouldn't have survived um, if we weren't Orthodox. Mm -hmm. Wow. So. I I want to go I want to go back in time a little bit. Um, cause I, I want to get into maybe some of the actual like narratives of your life around conversion. Yeah. And I'm wondering, was there a time when you were at Columbia Bible college? So you, you said you came into school thinking there might be a place again for a personal God and for Jesus Christ. Was there a moment where you had like a being born again or accepting Jesus into your heart moment around then at all? Or was it just a slow, okay, yeah, this is a thing now? It was a, yeah, it's, it was a courtship. Mm, mm -hmm. It wasn't like, like I've had, it wasn't like a Shazam moment. I mean, I've had a Shazam moment, so I know what it's like, but it wasn't. 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't uh, it wasn't like that at all. Um, it was a slow sort of building, trusting process. Um, and I appreciate the space that I was in, like at the at Columbia Bible College. That I didn't. There was no forcing of some sort of particular ideology necessarily, nor nor. Uh, there was a lot of freedom there and I appreciated that. I mean, it's probably why you have so many Orthodox people coming out of there. I mean, I think it boils down to three specific professors, but still the environment there at that time allowed me to grow in my relationship with Christ because I I don't think I was ever, I know I was never abandoned. God was always present. Um, It was just, was I willing to listen and was I willing to open up my own myself uh to to christ and that happened through my wife and her prayers and through me sort of slowly realizing that god well that well my parents and and their church may have rejected me that rejection did not go all the way to the top and i could still be who i was and who i am within the christian community and once I had once I had accepted that and was okay with that, then I think my relationship with Christ deepened ever more, and became you know more and more faith and less belief. What about when you were becoming Orthodox? Was it just because you started reading and because you started going to services that slowly over time you were just kind of converted to that way of? of worship and that way of life and that faith, or did you have any kind of singular moments on the way? For me, because I had, when I had started Columbia Bible college, I had, I had come in with a lot of background in philosophy, a lot of reading, um, uh, on a variety of ways about what it means to be human and how human beings relate both to each other and to the divine. And, I'd always had an issue with the sort of evangelical or Protestant construct of the human being and how a human being knows in the process, the the epistemology they had, the anthropology they had. I was always sort of, there's there's an issue here with what I understand and what we've read about human beings. And so I read, I think it was in, uh, I was in my second year, maybe in a church history class, I had to do a uh, biography. And out of the blue, for no reason that I can figure out, chose St. Simeon the Neat Theologian um, out of a textbook and surprisingly found his works in the CBC library. So that was like, if I look back on it, that's like the moment. Now I'm like, okay, that was the moment when St. Simeon the New Theologian was like, okay, uh, Christ, let's get this feller. And, you know, I, I read his works and I had, I was, I had, uh, had a lot of, I do poetry had been a big part of my life for a long time as well. And so there was, there was this attachment there to the aesthetic of writing theological poetry, which I found my, I was, I was sucked into that environment. And then as I read more and more and more and more resonated with me about, well, this is what Christians should and, and need to think and understand about what it means to be a human being in our relationship with God. There's something not, it makes sense to me both intellectually and uh, spiritually. There was a, a harmony there that was uh, that uh, sort of 
overwhelmed the dissonance that I was that I was currently in at CBC, and I appreciated that. My one of my profs, the the uh, who was in charge of the worshiper music program, was a classically trained musician. So we talked a lot about harmony in in theology. And what I was feeling at, at CBC for a long time was dissonance. And when I started reading the work of the Church Fathers and even contemporary Orthodox theologian, I heard the harmony of faith. And it was really attractive. I liked that sound. It resonated with me. I had been in dissonance for so long that the comfort of that place was rapturous. And I couldn't stop myself from just continuing to go, you know, deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. So it was, as I look back on it, that moment of realizing that there is, there has been, is, and will be this faith community that speaks my language was remarkable. And it was a joy to discover uh, the hard part was realizing that even so I had started and then I started reading and reading and, and doing all this sort of stuff. And you still had not come to the realization that there needed to be a harmony between my interior life and my external practice. And that took a while uh, for that gap to show itself. Um, I thought that I could sort of create an orthodox theological environment within an evangelical practice. It's not possible. You know, you can't have, um, without the practice, without the community, without the Eucharist, the theology is just intellect. It doesn't, it's not therapeutic, nor, is, nor will it save you. It's only when it's enraptured or in, in, enmeshed in the community and in the practice that it comes alive. And... I re- you know, that it, it took a while for me to realize that. But when I realized that, there was no question for me that I had to leave. Well, hello, patrons, and welcome to the Patreon half of our interview with Father Deacon Simeon Price from British Columbia. God's a, country. A, a real Canadian gem. As in, oh, Father, Father Deacon Simeon is the Canadian <laughs> gem, not, not British Columbia. Um, I want to ask maybe some questions about other religions slash philosophies that you've encountered sure. uh, in, in the Patreon half. We can be a bit more, um, a bit more open as of the time okay. of this recording, we have seven patrons. So, okay. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, you have obviously read a lot of philosophy. You've, you've um, read uh, a lot of theology. What other religions let's put it that way would you say have like a level of attractiveness for you and and maybe what other religions just don't like there's something about it it's just like you know what i just there's that's not what i'm into or that's not what uh is is appealing to my intellect or to my heart if i I, i'm gonna be blunt none Mm, interesting no okay um i have a good friend who he you know and oh i have two good friends um who are really one really deep into buddhism mm-hmm. one really deep into hinduism um they're my good friends uh there is nothing attractive there for me 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it is very self-oriented, which you know, which I don't find attractive at all. Um, and there, yeah. So no, there's like I've 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 just you know what's more attractive to me is certain philosophical mm-hmm. approaches to life. Um, so I'm I've always been very attractive to existentialism. If, mm-hmm. if it's even a particular frame type of philosophy. Uh, but I've, you know, I enjoy existentialist writings from Camus and Sartre and, and, and that sort of stuff. I, I appreciate destructuralist philosophy, Deleuze and Derrida, which is supposed to be called postmodernism. Uh, there's something quite refreshing about um, the way that they attempt to dismantle uh, some of the archetypes that have imprisoned people in our, in our modern context to dismantle some of the economic frameworks to reveal the person like what it, my, my, my search is I want to, I'm attracted to things that really try and answer the question. What is a person? What is a human being? And how do you become a better human being? And so for instance, uh, in a, in psychology, oftentimes you'll have the psychologies and psychological theories will give you all of the things you need to know to discern what is a poorly functioning human being. But very, very few, if any, say what I've read, one person, which is Jung, will describe what a healthy human being is. And Jung's idea of healthy human being is a fully individuated, self-aware, fully conscious being which is exactly what theosis is all about, is dismantling the quote-unquote the passions or the subconscious to unify our body, mind, and soul into a single experience. And so for me, it's not, it's not, religions are important and significant realities for people because we need those constructs to understand our place in this world, our relationship with the divine. But for me, orthodoxy extends beyond the religious practice where the practice becomes a way of being. If you'd like to listen to the second half of this interview, you can head over to patreon.com slash priest. Your support is what makes this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?